Let's pray because this is a lot of information and it's good stuff and your brain will just explode when you're done today. Lord, we just thank you for this day and I just pray that uh, you help us to uh, understand why this is all important and it's not just me throwing out words and people catching words, Lord God, but I pray that we learn uh, why this is part of who you are and what you want us to, to know as Christians and how to live our lives before other people. And we pray this all in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Well, just to finish off the big C, little C in the church Meyer part, uh, you'll start to notice that our essentials will now start to collide and mix and start to come all together. And some of our essentials have been the Bible, the church, who God is, the Trinity, and the character of all that, the gospel. And I have this. Oh, somebody's here and they're late. So one of the things of the church mire that I didn't finish was you start getting the heresies. You start getting the things that are undermining the essentials when people start getting out of control in their churches and people start to hate the church. In fact, one of the things that, that we read in the book of Romans is that in the book of Romans it says that because of you, the Gentiles blaspheme my name all day long. And that's in chapter 2 of Romans. And, and I take that to heart because when I'm sitting at the coffee shop that I sit at or when I'm at work and I identify myself as a Christian or I've been identified as a Christian, then people usually go, oh, you're one of those. Or like a friend that I had who was Jewish, her mom said, oh, you're one of those born-agains. You know, and you you start to get this weird negative label. Or like now with what's happening in San Francisco, oh, you're the hate speech people, you know, and all this kind of stuff. But it's so much so that now there's heresy rising up within the church that's agreeing with the criticism outside the church. And one of the persons that's right here in the Bay Area is Harold Camping. And like, if he wasn't bad enough... <laughs> You know, uh, back in 1995, 94, he said Jesus Christ would return and that, uh, you know, people should have given up on him back when he was wrong back then because Jesus Christ has not returned. But now he has something new about the church that says the church age has ended in which it is a sin because one of the things we talked about being in church last week was to be baptized and to take communion. He says it's a sin to take communion it's a sin to be baptized in any church and to be a member of any church is to go against and blaspheme the Holy Spirit and you need to come away from the church and that all you need to do to be right with God as we await for Christ's return that he already prophesied that didn't happen but he doesn't say that is to hover around the radio or the television set when he's on and have fellowship groups, home fellowships, not churches based upon how he's teaching correctly. Now, what's interesting is, uh, Harold Camping, not all the nutcases belong to the Pentecostal charismatic. Harold Camping belongs to the Calvinistic Reformed theology. So he doesn't believe in spiritual gifts for today. So not all the wacky people are charismatic and Pentecostal. So they got one for their side. And there's a really cool book <laughs> called Dangerous Airwaves by Dr. James White that deals point by point with Harold Camping's statements about why the church age is done and nobody should meet in a church. So you can look at that book later. Uh, another thing 
that I didn't get to do is, uh, is Jesus a Republican or a Democrat? <laughs> really excellent book by Tony Campolo, or also Who Changed the Price Tags? Uh, or another one is 20 Hot Potatoes That Christians Are Afraid to Touch by Tony Campolo. It just deals with the whole gay issue, uh, can a Christian have a Mercedes Benz and, you know, and different things that people get hung up on because, because like for the Mercedes Benz, I know people's faces are looking at me, is it, it's, you know, it can be a $100,000 car. So you as a Christian, being a good steward of your money, could you really desire and afford to have a $100,000 car? Maybe, maybe not. But the point is, you have to decide that. So Tony Campalo is trained as a, a, a sociologist. And he's not a minister, but he's a Christian, and he deals with all those issues. So, like, one of the things he said, he went to a really big, fancy church, and he said the S-H-I-T word. And he goes, you care more that I said that word in your church than you care about the people of Haiti that I'm trying to tell you to support. You know? So, things like that. He, he gets underneath people's skin and their comfortableness. And I think he's a good person to help to understand the, the things that people are more concerned about in the church, and like we heard in the church history class uh, just a moment ago, is how people are more concerned, what will God do for me, rather than what is the church doing for the world? So that's what's kind of happening in the mire of the church. And now, one of the things that has made the church that we need to get into is the resurrection, the bodily resurrection. And you would think this wouldn't be a difficult thing, but... It is difficult for some people. In fact, a book that was written by Norman Geisler about 10 years ago is called uh, The Battle for the Resurrection. And Norman Geisler belongs to the Evangelical Free Church, which is pretty much Christian, Orthodox, you know, middle road, evangelical church. But yet they were fighting within their own bylaws for several years about putting the word bodily resurrection into their statement of faith. And, and Norman Geisler took their leadership to task and said, look, we have to have that in here because it's going to be a, a turning point in Christianity. And so part of the things that uh, would be really helpful if anybody's picked up these booklets about the Passion, this is why the Passion is not just about the crucifixion, it's about the resurrection. And uh, if you don't have... The Case for Christ, which is a very thorough book, you can get The Case for Easter, which will basically talk about these points, which are excerpts from The Case from Christ by Lee Strobel. Now, in, in the book, and uh, now here's one of my concerns. This doesn't mean The Passion is a bad movie, but here's one of my fundamental concerns when I sat through there that I had a cringe is at the resurrection scene. Does anybody know why? Scars is okay. No, not because the crow's got the eyes. <laughs> With the resurrection scene? With the resurrection scene. The very last five minutes. Oh, it's like the, the, the thing coming. Does it have something to do with the clothes? Yes. Well, that, that's part of it because, okay, now the premise of the movie is showing Isaiah 53, right? And says, by his stripes we are healed. So for the premise of the movie, the movie is excellent because it's about Jesus being crucified. But the resurrection is so important of why the, 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 the crucifixion even happened is the clothes just kind of fell down. The shroud just kind of fell down. And then you see Jesus getting up. Well, Jehovah's Witness believed that God dissolved the body of Jesus into gases 
and that he is the Archangel Michael in a spiritual body. And we never really see Jesus do anything physical. But if he would have folded the, the clothes, the grave clothes, like it says in one of the Gospels, then we would have seen a physical aspect. Or one of the things I talked about at his resurrection that he appeared to the disciples, he ate fish to say, look, a shadow doesn't eat fish. So I'm just saying, for the element of the resurrection, I was just like, oh, I wish there was a little bit more. You know, I wish, you know, they might have showed him, you know, picking up his feet and some dust coming off of it, something. But the way they showed it is he's kind of like, oh, I'm rising up this spiritual body. He didn't come out from underneath the, the grave clothes. And, you know, or the angels didn't come and pull the grave clothes off of him. And, you know, he didn't sit up. I don't know. It just needed just a little bit more to solidify the fact that he was bodily raised. But anyway, why is that important? If we go to, uh, we sing this song, and a lot of people think it's from the New Testament. It's actually from the Old Testament. Job 19, uh, verses 23 through 29. My 29 got messed up there. And it says, even though I die in the flesh, I will see my Redeemer with my eyes. So there in the Old Testament is the idea of a bodily resurrection, if you read that whole passage. Psalms 139, also part of resurrection is you have to deal with the afterlife and death and what happens to us when we die. So you have, uh, in Psalms 139, it says, Where can I go that I can escape the presence of the Lord? You know, whether I go to the grave, you're there with me and make my bed in hell and all this kind of thing. Ezekiel 37, there's the Valley of Dry Bones. There's this whole massacred army and then Ezekiel is told to prophesy to the Valley of Dry Bones. And it says the sinews come back on them and they stand up. And then God gives them back their spirit. And it's a very weird kind of prophecy thing there. And, uh, oh, just to go back real quick. on uh, In the miring of the church, Hebrews verses five, uh, uh, chapter 5, verse 11 through 6, 3 should have been a better transition. It basically says, you ought to be teachers by now, but you need the elementary truths about who Christ is. And that uh, by training yourselves in the Word of God, you know what righteousness is and you know how to discern the truth. Okay? And then it says, starting in verse 1 of chapter 6, and, the, and we should go back to the elementary truths of Christ, which are sins that lead to death, faith in God, baptisms, the laying on of hands, about the resurrection, and about the day of judgment. So in there it says, here's some foundational things about Christ, but he's saying don't do it in the old Jewish ways, because that's who the writer of Hebrews is talking about. Don't go back to the old laying on of hands. Don't go back to the old baptism. Go and find out what Christ has to do with these elements of who we are as a faith. So to say all that, then we come back to bodily resurrection because we've talked about how to be saved, who is God, what is sin. Uh, and we talked about the aspects of the church having communion and uh, water baptism. We haven't talked about laying on of hands yet, but we'll get there. Uh, let's go to 1 Corinthians 15. This is an epic passage. If you don't remember one scripture whatsoever, you need to read the whole chapter of 1 Corinthians 15 because this will show that Jesus, he really died. Because that actually becomes an issue. Oh, well, Jesus didn't really have a body. He just kind of fainted on the cross. And then when they put him in the tomb, the cool air of the tomb kind of woke him up, you know, a couple of days later. And he was all right. But if he was just a man, guess what? That's not very good. He would be horribly crippled and disabled. 
and that's not what he appears to be afterwards. Uh, let's see. Or his body... Oh, question. Go ahead. Because of he was crucified. Because, I mean, you, if you went through that much... Like if you had a car accident and you went through that much bodily torture and the whipping and everything, you wouldn't be standing up the next day going, hey guys, you know? And that that's what I mean by he would be horribly crippled by the agony and pain. Nobody's body, I mean, with, you know, we, we can suffer damage, but there's results to that damage, whereas Christ only had scars versus, you know, he had the, you know, he, he didn't need a wheelchair, he didn't need a walker and stuff. Nobody had to help him. Uh... He bodily rose from the grave. Well, he didn't rise from the grave. It was a spiritual thing. You know, that was just a spirit body because his body really doesn't count for anything. He's the Archangel Michael and on and on the things can go. Or his tomb wasn't empty. The women were confused because they came too early in the morning and they went to the wrong tomb. So he's still buried there. Uh, oh, well, he wasn't put in a tomb because they just threw him out and the dogs ate his bones and devoured him. They just threw him in the garbage yard. And that's why there is no body. And on and on the things go. But the problem with that is he was seen. There was eyewitness after eyewitness after eyewitness. And then with some of the people that saw him, they, they asked for some kind of proof. They said, oh, well, I think you're a ghost. This is really weird that we're seeing you. And again, not seeing him crippled or anything else. They go, okay. So he eats fish. He goes fishing with them, you know. Peter's uh, re-entry, you could say, to his denial. Here's Jesus on the shore cooking fish and has bread waiting for him. I kind of think he just asked fish to pop up out of the ocean and he you know, speared them. And then he turned some rocks around there into bread because now he wasn't uh, restrained from doing that. But that's just my opinion because <laughs> he can do all that now and even more. But anyway, there he is. He's eating. He's sitting on the shore. And they're having conversations face to face they're not like okay lord what do you want me to do you know they're not looking around and just has some hazy glow people are talking to him face to face and then uh it says they saw him rise into the air you know you don't follow something and there's all these witnesses in the upper room there's over 200 people uh in first corinthians 15 which we're getting to haha As we race through the Bible. This is one of the most key passages. 1 Corinthians 15. And, and like what I said about essentials, we'll see some of the essentials turn over and over and over again in this particular passage. And I'll start reading NIV. Uh, now brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel. Ooh, I preach to you. So here's the message. Anybody remember what the gospel does according to Romans 1.16 it's the power of God to salvation so right here if somebody wants to be saved all they have to do is understand what does Paul preach so now we're going to find out what does Paul preach when Paul goes preaching does he preach about tithing and offerings does he go preaching about speaking in tongues and signs and manifestations of the Holy Spirit with angel feathers and Holy Ghost fire tunnels no here's what he preaches which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By the gospel you are saved. Well, there you go. Not water baptism, not speaking in tongues and church attendance. 
If you hold firmly to the word, uh-oh, there's the word. He preaches the word, so he's not just preaching stuff he made up. I preach to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. So anything else you believe besides what Paul is preaching, the gospel and preaching of the word of God, he says it doesn't matter. It's useless. Okay? For what I have received, I pass to you of, as of first importance. So things are important. They have priority. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep, which basically means they've died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. And that he's referring to that Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus and he didn't see him face to face, but he was encountered by, to by the power of the Holy Spirit and his voice, which was appearance enough. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of, of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach. This is what you believed. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? And if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. So he's making the point that Jesus Christ is bodily raised. And if he's not raised, then what are we preaching? And if Christ is not, if there is no resurrection, then not even Christ is raised from the dead. So the resurrection is a key, essential foundation because if you say there is no resurrection, then not even Christ has been raised. Okay. And this is just so media. I mean, I love to read this passage over and over again, especially when I've been beat down a bit by those who don't believe. And I'm like, okay, this is why i got to go on. Okay. Uh, verse 14. Oh, I'm sorry, 15. More than that, we are found to be false witnesses. Uh-oh. Jehovah's Witness, you are false witnesses. Uh, about God, for we have testified about God that he, is raised, uh, that he raised Christ from the dead. But if he did not raise him, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Why is our faith futile and why are we still in our sins if Christ is not raised from the dead? Somebody answer the question. If Christ is not bodily raised from the dead, why is our faith futile and why are we still in our sins? Okay, new life. What else? Right, God didn't accept the sacrifice. So, so again, there, there's the key point. Our faith is absolute rubbish. It's no good. I stole that from Nate. Anyway, <laughs> he, it's somebody we know. It's absolute rubbish. It's garbage. All this going to church, all our mission trips, everything is absolute useless, stupid, of no good if Christ is not raised from the dead. But because he is, it means something. All this confession and repenting of our sins and feeling bad for things and all on and on that we can go about what sin has done to our life. You know what? You still got it all. 
You have no forgiveness. You have no repentance. You have no eternal life. You're still a miserable punk. You're still a miserable, you know, whatever you were before Christ, you're still it. Why? Because Christ is still in the ground. But He's not. He's risen from the dead. He's bodily come out of that tomb. And He's made everything of faith true. He's made everything of your salvation for sure. And He's taken away every sin. I mean, you, you read this and you start to get some chills going through that. Okay. Oh, but it gets even better. <laughs> I just like the part about the false witnesses. <laughs> it's just, oh, but anyway, we're on verse 17. Uh, oh no, verse 18. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all been made alive, but each in his own turn. Christ the first fruits, then he who comes, those who belong to him, then the end will come. Then he hands over the kingdom of God, uh, the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that he does not include God himself, who puts everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. Now if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead, if the dead are not raised at all? They are uh, why are people baptized for them? And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I die every day. I mean that, br I mean that, brothers, just as surely as I glory over you in Christ, Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus for merely human reasons, what have I gained if the dead are not raised? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Again, more awesome passages in there just saying how important our faith is based upon the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ uh, I got it, this movie called The Body and we're going to see two clips from it today I think this might be the only clips because of how time constrained we are and this is a movie with Antonio Banderas that was made about 3-4 years ago and you probably should get it, rent it, I bought it for 6 bucks DVD used so it, it, Film-wise, it's okay, but message-wise, it's something that we should know as Christians. This movie is about uh, an archaeologist. There we go. That must be Lisa. <laughs> it's about an archaeologist in Israel finding a tomb that has a body in it that's been crucified, and they think it's Jesus Christ, and we'll find out why. But then, what will that do to our faith? according to what we just read here. Destroy it. Destroy it, exactly. <laughs> but what's interesting is, what's interesting about this is the archaeologist, who's the quote-unquote scientist, who's Jewish, is using the Bible to prove why she's right about what she found. And then Antonio Banderas, who's a priest, uh, who's observing all of this, is trying to say, well, you keep quoting the scripture, but how come you don't believe the, you know, the resurrection? Because that's also in the scripture. But that's the whole point to the movie. And they have some quirks and turns, and it's Antonio Banderas, so stuff blows up that has no reason to explode. And, you know. uh, 
But otherwise, it, yeah, it, it's it's kind of real interesting how they filmed this in Israel and they involved the Jewish groups, the the Muslim groups, as attacking them, and that the Catholic Church has this big conspiracy and everything. But anyway, chapter seven, they they entered into the tomb for the first time together. Uh oh. Okay, so they talked about the empty tomb, said, look, the tomb's empty. Why? Because they pulled up a wall so they couldn't see that Jesus was buried behind some kind of wall. Another reason for why the tomb could have been empty is some say, well, they went to the wrong tomb, so they looked into an empty one, but it wasn't the right tomb. So that's why they didn't find him. But some of the ways to discredit that is, well, show the real body. You know, and that's kind of what's happening in this movie. They go, oh, well, we found the real body. And then they even bring in... Um, uh, anthropologist, who's also uh, good with, I forget what it's called, that works in the morticians. Uh, forensics, exactly. And they kind of go CSI on it a little bit. And he talks about, oh, well, look at the side. It looks like it was pierced by a rounded uh, spear. 
And then the guy doesn't know that they think this might be the body of Christ. He's just come to say, hey, come look at this crucified body because it's hard to find crucified bodies. And they talk about them given to the dogs, just like I mentioned earlier. And then they talk about how, oh, look at his, and they name the specific bones on the skull and how they've been pierced, but they don't have any oxidation. So he was pierced with something else in his forehead and it goes all the way around, kind of like a crown. And then you start to get, oh man. And then even uh, Antonio Banderas as the priest gets really like shaken. And there's another priest who's gone in and he loses his faith and stuff and gets really weird. But anyway, you have to see what happens at the end. You have to rent the movie. But anyway, we know what the real story is by reading 1 Corinthians 15. If Christ is not raised, your faith is futile, you're still in your sins, and we are false witnesses. But, in order to understand bodily resurrection, we already know from the Old Testament, from Job, Psalms, and Ezekiel, and even more passages, any passages that talk about the dust, uh, Psalms 23 talks about that even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, it's talking about people still being alive after they're dead. So an important thing that we must know in dealing with essentials of bodily resurrection, we have to deal with the afterlife as well. So 2 Corinthians 5 verses 1 through 10, we look at that, it talks about how to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord, that this is a tent of flesh, but yet this is not the permanent state. And to be dead is not to be all dead. It's only mostly dead. So, anyway. So, your body's just dead. The flesh part is dead. And that goes back to who we are as human beings. That essential saying, we are sinners. But according to Hebrews, it says, it's appointed unto man once to die, and then what? Judgment. But now that goes into our next part. Is that the day of judgment? The final judgment? Uh, it's the first judgment, which basically says, okay, here's where your spirit goes as we await the final day of judgment, which basically means here's where you go, and it's a place of comfort and waiting with Christ until he returns, or the other place, which is not very good. And how do we know there's another place? If we go to uh, Luke 16, there's where we go. Luke 16 there's two Lazarus in the Bibles, and both have to do with afterlife and resurrection. One is in Luke 16, and the other is in John uh, 11. But in Luke 16, we have the story of the beggar Lazarus and the rich man. And Jesus doesn't say this is a parallel, so this is always the great debate. Oh, it's a, par it's a parable, and you know he's just telling a story, and he's just trying to get a point across. But he uses real people's names. And I think when we get to heaven, we're going to meet this beggar Lazarus, and we're going to see the people who were around who knew and say, oh yeah, we knew this guy and he died and you know now we're with him here in heaven. But Jesus used his death to talk about how he suffered here on this earth and he didn't have a whole lot. The only comfort he had in his affliction bodily was dogs licking the sores. But then here's this rich guy in which he begged at his gates. You know, it kind of might be like if I went and hung out at uh, one of Bill Gates' mansions and said, hey, help me out. And Bill Gates never helped anybody. But that's not true because Bill Gates helps a lot of people as much money as he has. It's kind of weird. But anyway, this rich man didn't help anybody. He, it was all about him. And he dies. And then Lazarus dies. And it says the angels escort Lazarus to the bosom of Abraham, which was the waiting period at that time until the crucifixion. 
because the thief on the cross is told, today you'll be with me in paradise, besides being told, today you'll be with me in the Abraham uh, bosom of Abraham. So that's important facts there. But anyway, going back to that story, he goes to the bosom of Abraham, which is basically the waiting place. It's the, the valley of the shadow of death. It's the place where you wait until redemption has been paid for. It's not a place of torture. It's just a waiting place. So if you want to talk about purgatory, that's the only time there is something that seems waiting. But even between there, it says there's a great chasm, if you read through Luke 16, that separates the bosom of Abraham and this place of torment. And this guy is in agony. The rich man is in agony. He's in total torment. So now we have to realize there's a conscious state after death. You are in total agony. And there are some groups that believe in soul sleep. And again, because of some of the passages we read, is our brethren have fallen asleep and there's no hope for them, like back in 1 Corinthians 15. That's a euphemism. You see that euphemism used in uh, John 11 when uh, Lazarus, who's sick, dies. And Jesus tells the disciples, well, he's fallen asleep. We're going to go wake him up. Oh, well, if he's asleep, just let him rest and he'll be okay. You know, take, take a couple aspirins and he'll be okay. No, he tells them plainly, he's dead. He's dead. Okay? He's not mostly dead, he's dead. <laughs> so, here you have this correlation going on that death is not what God intended for us. And, but there's something that happens in the afterlife because of what happens to our spirit. And there's a point of judgment where we go to a place of torment or punishment. And there's a place of peace. And even more so now, we go to that place of peace with Christ because of what it says in first, uh, 2 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 10, to be absent from the bodies, to be where? Present with the Lord. So when we die, there's where we can expect to go, being believers in Christ. But if Christ has not been raised from the dead, where are you going to go? Nowhere. There's no hope. You're still lost in your sin. But Christ is risen from the dead, so we don't worry about that. But in Luke 16, here's this tormented guy. And he sees Abraham and the great chasm. And he's like, you know, Abraham, Father Abraham. So apparently he was Jewish. So he wasn't just, you know, pagan guy. He was a Jewish guy. And he goes, Father Abraham, can you send Lazarus over here? You know, let him dip his finger in some water and, you know, touch my tongue because I'm in such torment. And it's not that he has a tongue up there. It's just a figure of speech saying he's in torment. He's in agony. And then Father Abraham's like, no, 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 no. Nobody passes from here to there. There's, that's it. No more chances. No more second chance. That's it. And then he goes, but you know what? How can I prevent my family where they're at from coming here? My other brothers who are still alive, they're going to end up here because they're living the same way I'm living. So there's an obvious teaching in that that what you do on this earth determines where you go afterwards. And in teaching that, it's very interesting. Abraham tells Lazarus, you know what? They have the prophets and the law and if they can't get saved from that, why are they going to believe? Because Lazarus, or, or the rich man's request was to send Lazarus back from the dead to talk to his brothers to warn him about come, warn them about coming to this place. He's like, okay, forget about me, but keep my brothers from coming here. And they go, if they can't believe, 
what's in the Bible, basically, how are they going to believe somebody risen from the dead? And it's kind of interesting is that's what we have to do. We have to believe somebody risen from the dead, but we believe somebody risen from the dead because of what it says in God's Word. And this is what we read back in 1 Corinthians is the gospel that Paul preaches is directly from the Scriptures, directly from the Word of God. Christ is the fulfillment of the resurrection. He's the first one raised from the dead, but he's not just raised from the dead like I come back to life because... In John 11, Lazarus is raised back to life, but he died again. That's not the resurrection. Resurrection is being transformed. And why do I say that? We go back to Scripture, 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, Starting in verse 35. But some may ask, how are the dead raised? What kind of body will they come? How foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but a seed, perhaps of wheat or something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined. To each kind of seed, he gives its own body. All flesh is not the same. Men have one kind of flesh. Animals have others. Birds have another. Fish another. There are also heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly body is one kind and the splendor of the earthly body is another. Uh, The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, the stars another. The stars differ from stars in splendor. So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown perishable is raised imperishable. It is sown dishonored and is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness and is raised in power. It is sown a natural body and is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man Adam became a living being, the last Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth, the second man from heaven. As the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth, and as the man from heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the likeness of the earthly man, so shall we bear the likeness of the man from heaven. Okay, so you read all that. What does all that mean? It says, we are human beings, we are made of the dust of the earth, but we're also spiritual because we're made in the likeness of God. But what goes into the ground, so to speak, keeping the analogy of the seed, is going to be an image. It's only the starting place of what we'll be like completely. And you read later on, it says uh, on verse uh, 53, for the perishable must clothe itself with imperishable the mortal with immortal. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, then the mortal with immortality, then the saying is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? This body that we have is going to come up. The dust is going to be reanimated and reunited with our spirit that's gone to be with the Lord, and we will be raised up. Now comes the question is, when will we be raised up? But before I get to that one, here's a really good question. Who raised Jesus from the dead? This goes back to our meshing of essentials. Only the Holy Spirit? God who? Okay. So, and? There you go. So, somebody read for me Galatians 1.1. 1, 1. 
We actually read one. There, there are several verses. The Trinity raised Jesus from the dead. So that's, that's the, the totality of the answer. But how do you prove that? Well, we read here that says, God the Father, who's the life-giving spirit, raised Christ from the dead right here in 1 Corinthians 15. But if we read Galatians 1.1, 1, 1, what does it say? James, read that one. So God the Father, there's the specific words, raised Jesus from the dead. Somebody read uh, John 2, 18 through So, who said would raise Jesus from the dead? Jesus. He says, I raise my body. You, you destroy this temple, I will raise it up in three days. Okay? Uh, Romans 8, verses 8 through 11. And I put 8 through 11 in there because it talks about judgment, which we're getting into next. And we're doing good with time. Uh-huh. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who lives in you. Okay, so who raised Jesus from the dead? The Holy Spirit. But we see in that verse, it's the Holy Spirit. It's God, who's a trinity, one God. So, And there's more verses to that, so that's up to you. I just give you little nuggets there. Okay, a really excellent book to help you in understanding the resurrection and all the implications of how to prove it and deal with it. The Resurrection by Hank Hanegraaff. It also deals with interesting questions about will there be animals in heaven? Will there be sex in heaven? You know, will there be marriage in heaven? And all these little interesting weird questions that people ask about, well, once I get there, all I'm going to do is just play a harp and, you know, float on a fluffy cloud? No. But if you read the book, it'll give you some really good insight and answers to that that are biblical. Because we don't have time. Tell Todd to make the class longer. Okay. Let's go to John 5. Verses 19 through 32. And again, we're starting to see this meshing of essentials about the Trinity, about uh, about God, about the Gospel, about the Bible, and all the correlation that happens to that. And uh, we're going to read 19 through 32 because I think it has a lot of interesting aspects and distinction about the Trinity, but most specifically about the resurrection of the dead and the Day of Judgment. Uh... I've got to turn there myself. You want to read that, Matt? Sure. Thank you. Are you doing eight, you said 18? 19 through 32. Right. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the Father do. For whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. 
For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does, and will, and he will show him greater works than these, that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming, and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those will hear <coughs> will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself, and has given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice, and come forth those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. I can of myself do nothing, as I hear I judge, and my judgment is righteousness, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. There is another who bears witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. Cool. So again, this is a really excellent passage about the Trinity. You see, the Father loves, the Son has been given all judgment, the Father judges no one, the testimony of the Holy Spirit is helping Jesus. God the Father gave Jesus the authority to give life because the Father gives life. And there's this great meshing and working, but I'm going to ask some specific questions and only answer from these verses here. Uh, how, how is one saved? According to these verses here, how is one saved? Hears the word and believes it. Right. And what is the word they have to believe? Uh, his testimony of the Father. Right. That God loves and that he wants to be restored in the relationship with them and kind of go from there. But now, who, what, what kind of resurrections will there be? How many resurrections will there be? Two. Two. Okay, very important. So, and there, and will these both be bodily or just spiritual? They're both bodily. So now, what is the first resurrection? And it will be bodily to what? What kind of life? <laughs> A happy eternal life, okay? A bodily resurrection to eternal life. Now, what about the second resurrection? Very unhappy life. A resurrection to condemnation. So, see, we, in Christianity, we always talk about the uh, resurrection and we talk about being caught up in the air with Jesus and happy-go-lucky and, you know, sweet by and by. But we neglect the second resurrection. Now, what's interesting is, here you have, it says the people will be in the ground and they'll hear his voice. Okay? People will be in their graves. So it, that's why we know it's bodily because he's talking about the graves being opened, the graves being releasing the dead, a dead to eternal life and dead to condemnation. Now that's how we get into the day of judgment. And now 
Uh, we've heard a little bit about hearing his voice and so forth. But a classic scriptures for understanding resurrection is 1 Thessalonians 4.11. And we're not going to read it all, but there's pieces through there. 1 Thessalonians 4.11 through 2 Thessalonians 1.12. And I think you got to kind of all conglomerate and read it. Even though the letters were sent separately, it kind of continues the flow. It's kind of like Paul sent a letter, maybe got interrupted. and goes, well, I'll finish it when I get to you know my next place. And then he starts almost where he left off. And going back to the thing about the Bible, how many people know that the chapters and the numbers in the Bible are not inspired? <laughs> Meaning God didn't say, and write this for chapter 11 and so forth. You have to look at natural writing paragraphs and breaks and so forth. And, and so I try to read in natural paragraphs as best as possible. And you read this and it says, the dead in Christ will rise first. They'll hear the trumpet of the Lord. The last trumpet will sound. They will rise up. They'll meet the Lord together in the air. And forever be with the Lord kind of thing. And then when you get to Second Thessalonians, it says about the Lord's coming and how it be wrathful and everyone who's caused you harm will be uh, basically put to death and judgment and so forth. And it has the elements of what we had in John, the two resurrections. Because then it talks about those who are still alive when Christ returns will be changed to be together with those who've been raised from the dead. Wow. So, not everybody has to die. But if you get to be here on the day when Jesus Christ returns, you don't have to die. That's pretty cool. But anyway, because I prefer not to die. You know. Anyway. Okay, now we get to the real sticky subject. And good thing Todd's not here, so he can't harass me. <laughs> oh, uh, another really excellent book that's going to help us with the next part is What Did Jesus Mean by Ron Rhodes? Really excellent book. It goes through every verse in the Bible that Jesus makes comments on and it talks about uh, erroneous things that people use for it and then point by point description of what it means according to Jewish idioms and stuff like that uh, and you have stuff about Jesus claims about himself, the miracles of Jesus, salvation of humankind prayer and faith and the devil and his angels and just on and on and anybody can look at this book after we're done today but now we get to the day of judgment, the thing of end times and last days. And this is where we get church splits. People get it all sticky and crazy. And so uh, maybe Grace can help me on this. What's the name of the book that's on the book table about the Revelation? And it has a cover with rainbow on it looking. You don't remember? There's a book on the book table. Do you know what it is? It's like commentary on Revelation. Okay. That one is very pre-trib, uh, millennial kind of stuff. And this book, called The Blessed Hope by George Eldon Ladd, is a classic book as well, written in post-trib, uh, sort of all-millennial style, uh, preterist style. And you look at it and you compare the two, and it's kind of interesting is the covers both have rainbows on it. <laughs> I don't know why that happened, but... Those people from two different viewpoints put rainbows on their covers. So I recommend this book and I recommend the other book because one of the things we cannot be dogmatic about is, well, when's Jesus Christ going to return and all the details about it. So that's why I put the details in lots of question marks. Uh, Preterist view means that people who believe everything in prophecy has already happened. I think it's covered in both of the books because one will say they believe or don't believe to a certain degree. Uh, 
I, I'm about ready to show my hand and just be. Or is it just presented in a way as a view? It's presented in a way from view, and they both use scripture. Uh, I'm more partial to this side. So you so you wonder how I sit at, at Regen. And then uh, there's this book here, End Time Visions, The Road to Armageddon. This is church history, but only church history in the views of people predicting the end of the world according to scripture. And there's like a doomsday prophecy line. We've already missed a couple dates. So Jesus has not returned on those things. And it talks about how Jehovah's Witness got started, Seventh-day Adventists got started, um, uh, the Millerites, and a whole bunch of things. And it's a really, really excellent book. And kind of going back to the church mire and then people making up stuff, one chapter that just really tore my heart out is a group in, uh, I want to say it was Korea, but it might be another Asian country. I'm sorry. I'll have to read it again. Uh, got a hold of a Jackfin Impey teaching and translated in their language. And basically, their viewpoint got to be sort of like this so warped pre-trib kind of thing that they predicted when Jesus was coming, that to be part of the 144,000, you would have to speak in tongues. And that proved that you were part of the 144,000. But not just speak in tongues, you had to speak in tongues until your vocal cords bled. Okay? And then on top of that, because they were afraid that their children would be left with the Antichrist and so forth, they would beat their children until they spoke in tongues until their vocal cords bled. And they would deprive them of sleep and food until they spoke in tongues that way. And basically, they were total sham because the point in time where they focused on came and went, and it was ugly. All because somebody got a track from Jack Benimpy. Okay. And, and he's somebody who's on TV. He's got this big helmet hair, and he has his wife, Roxella. And you see prophecy after prophecy, and he basically takes, like, a newspaper, and he adds scripture to it. And, like, he uses the same scripture, like, 500 times for different things. But anyway, I don't like Jack Benimpy, if you haven't figured that out. But the point is, as diverse as we can be in our, in our views, and, and I'll state my view, but... It, it means absolutely nothing because I don't hate anybody who has something different. I would definitely say I'm a post-trib, all-millennialist, partial preterist. And if you don't know what that means, that's okay. But, <laughs> but, the thing that whatever point of view you have to believe, and that's what I call the three wills, this is what will happen in the end times and last days. When they will happen, the details of before and after and tribulation and antichrist and where all that falls, I'm not worried about those details. We could debate and discuss those. That goes on the non-essential side. But the day of judgment, end times, last days, there will be a rising of the dead. Okay? We know that from Scripture. And how many risings of the dead will there be? Two. Two. One to judgment and one to eternal life. Now, when you want to put those, I leave that up to you. Okay. There will be a return of Jesus Christ. Just in the same way there was a first advent, there will be a second advent. The first advent was he came as a child. He came humbly. He rode a colt. Next time, he's riding a horse, and he's just going to open a big can of whoop and put everybody down. Okay. And some people, if you look in the Old Testament, it's usually referred to as the day of the Lord. Okay. But again, that would be some of the issues of how people determine things. So 
But there will be one. There will be a day of the Lord. There will be a second coming of Jesus Christ. And there will be a day of judgment. I'll finish. There will be a day of judgment. Now, we look at Revelation 22, and basically it says, the question is asked, Jesus, when you come? And he goes, soon. There's your answer. When will Jesus come? Soon. How soon is it? Sooner than it was the last minute you asked me? Uh, you want some clues? Matthew 24, Luke 17. And to me, part of the interpretation of that goes either way. But uh, I, I determined that the interpretation of Matthew 24 and Luke 17 is the disciples asking three questions. And you have to determine which question he's, at, he's answering because he doesn't. Is when will the temple be destroyed? When will be the end of time? And when will be the day of judgment? Or when will you, your return be? And he just kind of like, oh, la, 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 la. And you're like, wait a minute, which is which? They knew because they knew scripture. And in order to understand the revelation, in order to understand what Jesus said in Matthew 24 and Luke 17, you have to be a master of the Old Testament. You have to know what the Old Testament says in prophecy and uh, revelation. I'm wearing this shirt called uh, Legend, which is an apocalyptic rock opera by my friend who is the front... Uh, singer of Savior Machine. It's all the messianic and prophetic scripture set to music in an apocalyptic rock opera. So thus, end time kind of thing. And it's really cool. And it's very theatrical. He takes, he, he takes uh, Israeli flags and uh, Palestinian flags, dips them in stage blood and dances around with them. And he lights the United Nations flag on fire. And it's just epic, and he drinks blood on stage, and there's, it's, it's just epic. I have it all on video, too, and I've known him for several years. But he studied the revelations and other prophe- prophecy literature and people who were whacked and not so whacked for over six years. And he's just like, you know, I used to have an opinion, and now that I finished this, I have to make sure I implement both because it's unfair to leave people out because they have one opinion or another. So I'm pretty much like him. But I'm more stronger in one than the other. What's, how do you differentiate between the second coming and the day of judgment? Or I don't. <laughs> <laughs> other people might, but I don't. Uh, you don't differentiate? I don't. Oh, okay. See, oh, see now, now here's, I'll tell you, in my point of view, I think all of these events happen at, at one time where other people kind of spread them out between tribulation and so forth and so on. And again, because my point of view says we go through it all, and at the end there's these three things. So, but again, don't crucify me, don't kill me. You know, I already told Todd I was going to do this. In fact, when we went on to the Russia missions trip, one of the Calvary Chapel things is you must believe the Calvary Chapel stuff. And it said that. And I told Todd, I go, I don't believe this. And he goes, well, what do you believe? And then I told him, he goes, well, that's good enough. Okay, so that's the whole point. That's the whole point, you know. And, and I've talked with Calvary Chapel people. In fact, my friend Nate, who, who preaches at Calvary Chapel Fremont, We've been at the Bay Street Coffee sometimes just in these real like <laughs> lightsaber kind of things. And, and it all has to do about the temple being rebuilt and stuff like that. And I just know how to push his buttons and he could scream loud too. But anyway, <laughs> the point being is, you know, and I'm not being defiant to him, but we're having really good stuff and we don't hate each other. I mean, that's the whole point. You could have very vehement disagreement and not hate each other. Don't, don't do like the Barnabas and Paul split uh, uh, splitting of the church early thing. Anyway, so I say all that. Oh, question. I'm sorry. Uh, okay. um, is the day of the Lord also the same thing as the year of the Lord's 
That that's a good question. I haven't really looked into that. But it could be. Yeah. I I'll have to I'll have to look later into that. I ha- I haven't I've looked more into the second coming and the day of the Lord synonymously than the the year of the Lord's favor. Uh if I were to make a guess at this point, I would say the year of the Lord's favor is the grace that we have now and the mercy that we have now. So we had this big stay of execution and like people get into the feast things and go, oh, look at the timeline. And this is why they expected the Lord's coming so quick because they go, oh, look, he's the Passover, the unleavened bread. And then they get to the Feast of Tabernacles and they're like, where's the trumpets? Okay, the trumpets have sounded. Where's he at? So it's kind of like the time clock all of a sudden and then stopped and then went slow motion to the next tick, which has been 2,000 years. Yes, the snooze bar. That's a good one. Right. I think the son doesn't know because he was answering out of his humanity, and that's my cop-out answer. Right, and they didn't ask him that. I'm looking at time, sorry. Oh, yes, okay. Isn't there some other scripture that says he knows everything from the beginning to the end? Right. Okay, so that little piece of time where he was human, he didn't. In his humanity. Yeah. But, but again, they asked him a question about the temple and, you know, certain things, and he told them, you know, this generation will not pass, but do you interpret that as for today and his coming, or do you interpret that as A.D. 70 yeah. that the temple was destroyed? And that's why I said you, you read it, and sometimes you go... I kind of like the temple thing. And then other times you go, well, what about, you know? My so. Right. Or like I said about you know, Harold Camping earlier, you know? He, he just straight up, hey, September, and he used the, the feast things. Well, because he determined that there was 159 fish caught on Peter's uh, thing. And he, cre- he just arbitrarily stuck numbers in and calculated and that's the thing that, that becomes a problem with people in, in prophecy that we have to be careful of. So the only thing that I want to say that we should be sure of that we talk about as an essential is what? The dead will rise. Jesus Christ is coming back. And that there will be a day of judgment. And what I was going to get to on the day of judgment, which is an interesting thing that is a challenge for everybody else, uh, we seem to say, oh, now that you accepted Christ, he's written you in the Lamb's Book of Life. Well, you know what? I never see him writing anything down. I always see him blotting things out. So when it talks about the books being opened up, if you look, it always talks about being blotted out. So I, 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 I want to say as a statement of opinion that I found from Scripture that everybody's name is written in the book, but only till you get to the Day of Judgment, then you get taken out. Oh, no. There you go. We're all going to hell. So... So you, so you get blotted out. So people say, oh, I lost my salvation. I don't have my salvation. You know what? He's waiting for you to get there and take your reservation. But then you come, showed up, and you don't have any of the requirement, which is the blood of Jesus Christ. He goes, I don't know you. You're blotted out. So wait a minute. <laughs> yes. Go look up blotting with your concordance. And, and look, look up... Books of life and all the books that are open. And he, he looks for your name and he wasn't found. 
The reason it's not found is because it had to be blotted out. So and all it talks about blotted out. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, this goes back to, again, what I say about predestination. Every person that's born has the capacity to be like Christ if they accept him. If they don't take the provision of salvation, then they rejected what they could be like. And the only way you'll know for sure, as far as that you did, well, restate that. You, you, if you know Christ, you're sure that you're going to get there. If you don't know Christ, you're going to be told when you got there, look, this is what you could have been. We can't let you in because you were told and here's all the times you got told and you rejected him over and over again. This is how you blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Now we got to blot you out. But it's interesting to go look at the Day of Judgment that there's all this blotting out, there's all this weeping and the gnashing of teeth. And then people are even saying, well, we prophesied in your name, Lord. We prophesied in your name. And that's in Matthew. And that definitely shows that on the Day of Judgment, who are you going to face? Not Buddha, not Muhammad. You're going to face Jesus Christ. And he's going to say, depart from me, for I knew you not, you workers of iniquity. But yet they cast out demons. They raised the dead. They did all these miracles. But it was for them. It wasn't for Christ. Right. And, and, you know, so like the wiping away of tears sometimes, uh, I think it, it's us seeing people who had the opportunity and we see them go to their, their destination of hell. And I think that's why God has to wipe away our tears. Other, other reason for wiping away our tears is the opportunities we had to tell people and we let them go. Um, oh, going back to the Day of Judgment. Also part of essential to the Day of Judgment as Christians, what will we be judged for on the Day of Judgment? Our works. Our works. Because, where, where did we read that? 1 Corinthians, Corinthians 3. Yeah. And where did we read it today? What? We read it today. John 5. That's what I meant. <laughs> so, 1 Corinthians 3 and John 5, Christians will be judged... And everything that we have, we get to go, okay, here's our living sacrifice. Judge our lives. And not about whether we go to hell or heaven, but to say, okay, here's your reward. You know, you know, and we get lavished upon and trumpet sound and, you know, I don't know. That part I'm making up. But, you know, we get rewarded. What's that? Our wood burns away and we're Yeah. The cross burns away and we just get the, the, the gold nuggets that were in there. Anyway, that's a bad vision from somebody. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but then for the person who's not a Christian, what would their judgment be like? Well, that's when we die. Everybody faces that. But on the on the final judgment, what? Right. So now, according to Romans, it says, "For the wages of sin is death." They're going to be paid all their wages. So you know what? They try to live their life. And they're going to get what their life earned. And, and again, Paul says, this life is rubbish. You know, it's a heap. I considered everything I've done here dung. I mean, you don't have any stronger words in the gospel other than another one, but I won't use that one today. You know, it says, everything is crap. You know, it just, yeah. you don't, he goes, everything I've done here is crap unless it's Christ. 
You know, and and I'm not trying to be like this purist that, oh, we can only do Christian things and go to Christian amusement parks and Christian underwear and Christian, you know, tofu sandwiches or something. It just, it doesn't work that way. Okay. So now, sure. says, I never knew you at the judgment. Mm-hmm. I think it's about because they claim to know him. They claim to know him. So it has to do with, we talked about the word, conocer and saber. They knew about him. They had the intellectual, you know, oh, here's Jesus, 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 Jesus. And they probably sold bumper stickers and, you know, with that little paper that we got in the mail with the face of Jesus and all this stuff, right? But they didn't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Uh-huh. Now, now that that's a good point because there will be a a appearance of miracles because it's their claim. It didn't say you raise the dead in my name. It says, "Well, we raise the dead." That's what they're thinking they're doing because Benny Hinn says he's raised the dead more than once, but he hasn't shown the proof to it. Right. In the name of Christ, they think they've raised the dead. They think they've healed the sick. Because there's no way you can raise the dead in any other name. Right. So there is a real raising of the dead, but then there's people who claim they're raising the dead. And they don't. And that's why, like the video that we're watching about investigating, here's somebody who says, well, I think I found Jesus, or a body that's kind of like Jesus, but now they have to investigate. you got to put it through the evidence. And that's the whole idea of apologetics is we have to put stuff through a body of evidence first before we come through all these conclusions and stuff. And we have to basically wear it down to the essentials saying, okay, do angels have feathers or don't have feathers? That's not important. Okay, but what is important is what do angels do according to scripture? Well, they don't show up and knock people over and, you know, leave a little feather. I mean, how many times does that happen? Or or like some of the videos I've shown of people falling down and all this kind of thing. They claim that's the anointing. They claim that's the Holy Spirit. They claim that's the power of God. But yet the person who was without equal possessing the power of God, anointed by the Holy Spirit and witnessed by the Holy Spirit, sent by the Father, how many people did he knock down? How many people did he cause to vibrate on the floor and then say a sumo spirit is doing that to you? You know, how many people did he he blew on and then the whole crowd falls over? No, the only thing he did with the crowd was give them fish and loaves. You know, and even like that. Okay, we go to the Passion of the Christ. One of my disappointments is when Jesus says I am, and he told them over, they didn't fall back. You know, okay. That's okay. He didn't do it. I was just a little bit peeved. He don't have to do it. But it would have been nice if when he said, I am, he used the divine name. He says, I am the burning bush, basically. They fell back. That's the gospel. Okay. So there's one part. It's not exactly the scripture. But it's a movie. I finally saw it. I had to break down because there were too many stupid people saying stupid things. So, And, and I did. And I, I enjoyed it for the most part. 
you know, because it was about the crucifixion. And that's why I said the resurrection thing was like, mm, okay, make part two or something, be really clear on that. Yeah, well, yeah setting up for the sequel. I, I think the sequel is this, the, the, the second coming. Question. I don't think they're blotted out. So you, I mean, that's what I'm asking. Right. So, so there could be people that... Well, like, like Leia asked the question last week, because uh, not last Sunday, but the Sunday previous, she went to go visit an apostolic church, a oneness church, where they purposely denied the deity of Jesus Christ. And she asked me, are those people saved? I go, I can't tell you, because, again, it's a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And one of the things it says in Romans, and we're going to get to this next week, is about... W- how far do we judge? What do we judge? And what it says in Romans is, how are we to judge uh, the Lord's servant? You know, that he's not a good servant or not a bad servant because he's basically saying, why are you watching somebody else's service when you should be watching your own? You know? So in that regard, we can't say, oh, he's not a servant. Okay, I can't say they're not saved, but I can definitely, two things, be a building inspector and a fruit inspector. And so, uh, so here's for your homework. So, because next week is just going to be a whirlwind of watching crazy things, and, and and just dealing with how do you deal with all these people and all these crazy things? Because we've gone through the essentials. Is we need to read Jude, th- uh, all of the book of Jude. Ready for this? This is your homework. So you can be prepared. Yeah. The book of Jude, Matthew 23, Jeremiah 23, and Zechariah. I've got to make sure of this. No, Zechariah 12. This is the short version. Zechariah 12. Pretty sure it's 12. Yeah. Yeah, the whole chapter's on those. And Zechariah 12 is verses 1 through 3. How's that? <laughs> it is. But see, this is like easy me- memorizing. Because what I do with... I'll tell you what I do with Jude 3 and Matthew 23 and Jeremiah 23. When I first came to regeneration, that's the first set of scriptures I put up to see, is this a healthy church? You know? Or if I go visit any of these kooky things, that's the first verses I put up. To see is is not is it godly leadership, but is it healthy leadership? You know, is it really listening to what God says, or are they just you know flying out both ends with whatever comes through them? You know, so. You know, what was the final Zechariah? Zechariah 12 verses 1 through 3. And then we're going to watch a little bit more of the body and how it deals with all this that we just did. Oh, question. I know a lot of the, the stuff that happens, like, you know, is unscriptural, but, like, what's to say that God does stuff? Because I think I believe God, you know, God is a dynamic God. God. Like, okay. It's not, like, like, what's to say that, like, there's things that he does that are not unscriptural? Does that make sense? But it's, like, in the... In the, in the because not everything is in scripture. Exactly. You know what I mean? So right. It's kind of like you know you use it as a as a as a testing line or like whatever like a plumb line or whatever, but it's not. You can't say that like everything that's not in scripture is 
Not of God. Right, because it doesn't say anything about Jack in the Box. So why as Christians are we going to Jack in the Box? Kind of right. I un- I understand. Uh, again, this is this is what the balance we have to know of using Scripture to the intent that it was intended, and also listening to the Holy Spirit. Now, obviously, the Holy Spirit who wrote Scripture is not going to cause you to do anything contrary to Scripture, and also contrary to His nature. So again, like I'll give you an example because we were talking about the church abuse last week and this week a little bit. One of the things that happened to me, and I have this book over here. Oh, maybe I'll, I'll show it later. It's a book called Charismatic Chaos by John MacArthur. Okay, And this was kind of my onset. So here I am entrenched in this Assemblies of God church that has this healing ministry where they're turning off the lights and stuff. They got this Bible study that they don't know about that I belong to that uh, were squatting and giving birth and having all these visions and stuff. And here I am in the midst of this, and some way, somehow, I got interested in this book because I'm concerned about people being slain in the spirit and the laughing in the spirit thing. And I didn't know anything about John MacArthur or whatever. I was just interested in the book. So I have it on my coffee table. I'm going to use something. I'm going to use Matt because this is what happens when people sit. And so I'm going to pretend I'm the person coming into my house and Matt's going to be me. And they see the book on the coffee table and they go, why are you reading that? Do you know that God is going to tear away your ministry and destroy everything that you've done? If you keep reading that book, Charismatic Chaos by John MacArthur. And it's kind of like Hank Hanecraft's Christianity Crisis. It was the before book. So now, tell me what was wrong with the statement that I just made to myself. Why is that not God? Because, you know, the Lord doesn't want you to read that. The Lord is going to destroy your ministry, and he's going to take away all the gifts he's given you. What is wrong with that, according to Scripture? Exactly. That's part one. Romans. Irrevocable. He gives out good gifts, and he doesn't take them back. And every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father above. Okay, so what else? I'm, I'm allowed to test scripture according to Acts 17. 16, 17 or 17, 16? should come to me in love. Exactly. There's no love. And also, wh- okay, I, I, also out of that, what does it also say about the character of God? <laughs> but what does it say about the character of God? That he's changeable. He's changeable. He's capricious. He, he's destructive. He wants to totally destroy things in my life. Versus what does it say in Jeremiah? I have good things planned for you, not to destroy you. See? and Right. So I knew enough of Scripture that when they did that, that was absolutely the devil showing up into my face. You know? And I had to politely say, you know, I, that's fine. Okay, thanks. You know? And I didn't know. I was scared. I was really scared. Because here's all these people that are like, oh, you're so anointed. You're so anointed. And totally massaging me and, and, you know, giving me all these good words just because I had a book on my coffee table. I didn't even tell them it was mine because I had roommates. I didn't even tell them I was reading it. They assumed it was mine because it was there. And then they just totally went after me in, in this weird, evil way. Then another time I showed up when I seen them afterwards when I separated from myself, a friend of mine, because I told these stories over and over again about squatting and giving birth, I go... Do not leave my side because these people are going to come over here. They're going to hunt me down right now. And so here we are. We're at this big old church and saw some crazy person, and I knew they'd be there. 
they came alongside me. Oh, would you like any prayer? Oh, okay. And I, and I would have normally said no, but because I wanted my friend to see what I went through, they started saying, oh, Lord, bless his life, la, la, la. And then the same person to rebuke me started screaming like a banshee in tongues and then started saying, 